0: Welcome to History of the World Part 2, a podcast dedicated to teaching world history. Welcome back to History of the World, part two, and we had a little bit of a break because 2020 wrapped up, you can put it behind us forever, and uh, we're getting into 2021, and so this episode is going to be a little bit different because we're wrapping up our first semester, and since we've had a little bit of a break, we're kind of getting two topics done in one week. Um, the first half of our podcast today we're gonna to talk about just the background around the French Revolution because it's kind of a complicated event. What we've been reading in class has to do with the reign of terror and whether or not it was effective um, but there's a lot of other stuff that happens that surrounds that event uh, and then what we're gonna do on the back side of the podcast after the break <clears throat> is get into the details around next week's topic uh. The rebellions, right? Other places that have had revolutions following the, the the American, which we started the the unit with, as well as the French Revolution. So, on the front half of this podcast, it's just going to kind of be a general overview about the French Revolution, giving you some background. So, if you're getting into the Reign of Terror and you're like, "Man, it kind of feels like we're starting halfway in the middle here," um, you'll know some of the stuff that surrounds it, right? Um, And so we're going to take this thing back a little bit to the ideas of the Enlightenment, which we saw in the last podcast, as well as the American Revolution. We talked about how the Enlightenment was this idea that governments and people that live in those governments um, should be symbiotic. They should work together, right? Government should be for the people. People should have rights in those governments. These ideas that still exist in modern society, right? But at this time, they're brand new. And we saw how the American Revolution happened, they get rid of the king and America becomes a country, right? They get rid of the English king, America becomes a country. The same thing's going to happen in France, but in a slightly different way, right? The French are also going to have a revolution literally a couple couple years after the American. People are getting these same ideas, um, but they're not going to be kicking out a foreign power like America kicked out the English. They're going to be fighting within themselves. And specifically They're going to be fighting within themselves to give themselves a new type of government because in France, there was an absolute monarchy. There was a king, right? Um, They still had a social order called feudalism where the king's in charge. Below him, you have some nobles, and below him, you have everybody else. Um, And in France, and specifically... In specific, the king had absolute authority. He was an absolute monarchist, meaning he held all the power. He was the judge, the jury, and the executioner. And it had been that way for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. But as the 1700s are winding down, as America is becoming a country, things start to seem to sort of fall apart. Um. The real trouble starts when France begins to try to expand during the global age of exploration. If you noticed in unit two, when we talked about the global age of exploration, a lot of it, we were talking about Spain, a lot of Spain. We were talking about England and Portugal, and there really isn't too much mention of France, right? Because France doesn't do it very much because Once you start colonizing, once you start going to other countries and taking over and saying, this land is now our land, you start to realize how expensive this stuff is, right? You have to be a very wealthy nation in order to do it in the first place and then as well to maintain it. And so the French get caught up in a war in America in a colony um, called the French and Indian War, or it's also known as the Seven Years War, depending on who you talk to. Um... But the French and the British end up fighting each other in America, in a colony, um, along with Native Americans, right? The French get the Native Americans to fight on their side for them. But the problem is, in order to do this war, they're going to end up borrowing a ton of money, right? Wars cost a lot of money, especially wars in foreign nations uh, in colonies, Right These things cost a lot of money, and so they end up borrowing a ton of it. But as the war winds down and as the war ends, France realizes they don't have the money to pay it back. they don't have the money to pay back all this these loans they took out to fight this war and Unfortunately, what's going to happen as always happens during this time period, especially or even in modern times if the country makes a bad decision, if the country goes to war and loses a bunch of money, the people that bear the brunt of that bad decision are almost always going to be the everyday people, and it's the same in France. And so, finally, by about the 1780s, 1789, the people of France get together, and they start saying, hey, we don't like this. There's some problems here. And we don't know if this king is doing such a good thing. We don't know if this king is making the best decisions. We don't know if he should have the authority that he has. And so this is where things get complicated. And we're going to essentially kind of go over this quickly. Don't get bogged down in all the details. The French Revolution, I could talk for hours and hours about what happens. But on May 5th of 1789, uh, a meeting gets called by this group called the Estates General, which was a political body in France that was supposed to come together to give advice for the king. But it was made in about the 1500s. It was a very old thing. It didn't exist really for 150 years. No one had used it. But all of a sudden, May 5th, 1789, they come together again. And the Estates General was supposed to be made up of the three different levels of French society, Uh, They're supposed to be the first estate which was the clergy which was the church the second estate which was the nobility or the you know the rich people who were friends with the king and then the third estate which was pretty much everybody else and during this time like I said it's this everybody else that is struggling it's this everybody else that is going to have to pay back all this money but As they get to this meeting on this day, this is where a lot of people say the French Revolution really starts. The people from the Third Estate, the everyday people, are asked to come to this meeting to advise the king, but when they get there, no one will let them in. 98% of the population of France the everyday people, the people that make the food, the people that fight the wars, the people that are paying the taxes, were barred from entering the meeting. And so, obviously mad, obviously incensed by this idea that they have been called to do this thing and now no one wants them there, they decide, you know what, fine, we're going to have our own meeting. And they march to the royal tennis courts, all the people get together and march to the royal tennis courts, And they make their own government. in this new tennis court, they call it the Oath of the Tennis Court. And all the people who make up this lower class get together and they say, you know what, we're done with this guy. We're done with this system. We're done with the clergy. We're done with the nobles. We're done with the king. We're not going to pay these taxes anymore. America did it. We can do it too. And so at this tennis court, the royal tennis courts, they decide they're going to make a new constitution. And they start the work of this. This doesn't happen one night, obviously, but they set the groundwork. But the king hears of this, and this is within the next couple months, right? The king hears of this, and he begins to call in troops to stop them. He was going to kill the Enlightenment. He was going to stop this revolution from ever happening. He has absolute authority, but the French people hear this and they decide to take action. And on July 14th, 1789, you have what is considered probably one of the most famous days in French history, uh, Bastille Day. Um, The people of France get together and they say, we're going to tear this regime apart. And they walk to a prison called Bastille Prison in in, uh, Paris. They tear it apart they take all the weapons, they kill all the guards, they free all these political prisoners. And to show you how mad they were, and this kind of says something to how upset these people were, they tear it apart brick by brick, right? This prison, this symbol of of the king's power is ripped apart by the people and everybody is freed. And all of a sudden in France, you have this situation that looks like It's going to get bad, right? You almost have a civil war starting to take root. Um, Meanwhile, and this is all happening in Paris, the rest of France is struggling as well. There's a terrible famine going on where the people of France are literally starving in the streets. There's no food. Um, Their economy had plummeted. Bread, the cost of bread was about, 80% 80% of your day of your, your yearly income, meaning that you only had enough money to feed your family. And that was about it. If you could find the food, uh, and Paris begins to be taken over by radical groups of Frenchmen, meaning that the King has lost all control. Everything's fallen apart for the King. Um, the people are no longer listening to him in the countryside. Um, Every regular day workers are storming the houses of the rich and they're killing them and they're stealing their food and they're burning down their houses. Anybody that had a little bit of money was being killed. They call this the great fear. But things start to go well. This brand new government starts to get some control. They start to kind of rein people in over the course of a couple months. And they start a new government. They're going to call this new government the National Assembly. It has some rules. All men are now going to be created equal under the law. And when I say men, know that I mean people. They create a fringe constitution uh, called the Declaration of the Rights of Man, which is going to give people the right to life, liberty, and property. Um, The government is now going to protect the people rather than use them. But the king in his palace is still not listening. So things get rough. On October 5th, 1789, 6,000 women get together. They call this the Women's March. And 6,000 women get together and they march to the king's palace. They call it the Women's March. And the king's palace is in Versailles, right outside of Paris. And these women, carrying the weapons that they could find, they arrest the king and his wife, Marie Antoinette, King Louis XVI and his wife, Queen Marie Antoinette. And this is when things get wild. Eventually, the king and queen are are arrested. They're going to be tried for for harming the people and harming the revolution. Um, Other nations begin to look at what's happening in France. Other kings in places like Germany, which is starting to kind of formulate into one country, uh, England especially, but you have places like Russia, Right? These other places with kings who have been around for a long time who are looking at what's happening in France and saying, ooh, I don't know if we should let this happen. What if these ideas that the people can kill their king, what if these ideas spread to England? What if these ideas spread to Germany? What if they spread to, to Russia? Right, And so the new government sets up a group who is going to make sure that that doesn't happen. And this relates right to what we're learning in class. This new group's name is going to be the Committee of Public Safety. Makes sense. They're charged with keeping people safe. They're charged with keeping this new revolution and this new government safe. Doesn't work out that way, though. The Committee of Public Safety begins to question anyone who doesn't like this new French government, this new French revolution. And if you didn't, or if they decided that you were against their changes that they were trying to do, they would use this machine, which I've shown you images of in class. But if you haven't seen, look up the guillotine, G-U-I-L-L-O-T-I-N-E. It was a French invention of the time designed to cut people's heads off with relative ease. And they begin using this like crazy. And the committee, the guy in charge of making these decisions, was our dude, the person we've been looking looking at in class. His name was Maximilian Robespierre. They called him Robespierre the Incorruptible. And he starts going guillotine crazy. He kills the king and queen. He cuts both their heads off. Anybody who was rich and noble and a friend of the king, he cuts their head off. He finds these clergymen, these people who work for the Catholic Church, the ones who didn't flee, and he cuts their heads off. And he even finds people that he doesn't like. And he begins to cut their heads off as well. And by the end of it, most recommendations or most numbers say that we think he cut off about 20,000 people's heads in the name of this French Revolution, in the name of protecting this new government. And that takes us to our question in class we're looking at about whether or not the French Revolution and the Committee of Public Safety specifically, did it really protect it, right? That's what we're looking at. Now, what I want to do here too, because this could be the stopping point for the podcast, or at least this first half of it today, but I want to talk about what comes next because for those of you who listen, this might give you some ideas about where things are gonna go, right? Whether or not the Committee of Public Safety was necessarily such a good thing. And where things go after the French Revolution, some say is great, some say this was the point of the French Revolution, but some people say the French Revolution was a failure. And here's why. Eventually, during this reign of terror, during the Committee of Public Safety, during this um, time where Robespierre is cutting off people's heads, a new man rises up. And he's going to be considered one of the greats of history, right? For some reason in history, and I don't always apply this to the way I teach, but some people have said that like history is made by great people, right? And those people who would argue that would say that this guy is definitely on the list. In fact, most of us in this class have heard his name, even though you probably know very little about him, Napoleon Bonaparte. A guy comes along in this French Revolution, and Napoleon Bonaparte is going to take this revolution, this revolution that was supposed to be making a new government for the people, by the people, government protecting the people, and he's going to twisted a little bit, Napoleon Bonaparte is going to become the emperor of France in a matter of a couple years, which, if you've been paying attention, kind of seems like the opposite of what the French Revolution was trying to do in the first place, right? The French Revolution was trying to copy what the Americans did. By this point in America, we had had a president elected We had had Congress created with a House of Representatives, which represent the people, and then a Senate, which was designed to represent the state's needs, right? We have this representative democracy. But France very quickly goes from having a king who has absolute power to an emperor who essentially has absolute power. And in the middle, you have this reign of terror where people's heads are getting cut off. Right Now, there's some background about how Napoleon takes over. We'll touch on it briefly. Essentially, he works his way up through the ranks of the French army. In fact, he worked for the Committee of Public Safety, and he becomes very famous during that time of being a general who will get the job done no matter what. He was an artillery man. He was an artillery general or officer. It was his job to fire the big guns, if you don't know what that means, right? Uh, And he proved that he was not afraid to get his hands dirty, right? Where he really proved his mettle when he got his big break um, was in the summer of 1795. uh, There was a riot in Paris where the new Committee of Public Safety was functioning. And they called in Napoleon Bonaparte and his big guns because they knew that he would kill the rioters without question, right? The rioters are just poor people, everyday people. And Napoleon rushes in with his guns, kills them, no sweats, right? He also goes around and he fights a lot of other countries. He becomes a big deal in in French history, right? He's kind of like the George Washington of this time period for the French. Um, The people loved him. Uh, The government loved him. Questions about whether or not he should have taken this mantle. So, this guy comes along, he begins to spread kind of the Enlightenment ideas all over France, these ideas about the new government, but he does it by destroying the French Revolution in the first place, right? And so, some people think of him as a good guy because what he does eventually, and we're glossing over a lot of history here on the backside, but what he does. Is he creates one of the strongest armies in, in the history of humanity, at least at the time. The French army in the, the early 1800s was one of the strongest in the world. Um, and he begins conquering other nations around him. He goes to Spain and he conquers the Spanish Empire, or at least the Spanish country, therefore the empire. He conquers all of Italy. He conquers all of what would eventually become Germany. He conquers all of Portugal. He starts to create almost a new Rome, right, with this army that he creates. And while he does this, he's bringing these ideas about government for the people, by the people, government where all people are treated equal under the law, Um, a government where people can practice whatever religion they want to practice, right? Very American-sounding type of government. But again... He does that by becoming a dictator, by becoming an absolute emperor with absolute authority. Um, now, how does this story end? It ends in not so great a way for the French Revolution, hence the reason we can talk about, yeah, the American Revolution was successful. We became a country. country still still standing. The French Revolution, though, 20, 30 years, there's the killing of the king. The Reign of Terror under the Committee of Public Safety. Napoleon comes along. There's all the wars. By the end of this time, Napoleon makes one fatal mistake at a very famous battle, um, where he loses his army. Essentially, uh, the 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 numbers. If you want to know numbers, um. He brings 600,000 men to this battle. He's fighting the Russians, and only 15,000 of them make it home. That's how many people he got killed, right? And finally, once he gets killed, people begin turning on him. Um, the kings and queens of, of surrounding nations who he had beaten and pushed out of power start to come back in. Uh, the French people are mad that they've lost so many people. Napoleon is sent out to go live the rest of his life in exile. And the nephew of the King Louis XVI, the one that was beheaded in the beginning, his nephew was put back in power in what would become the Bourbon Restoration. And so, quick overview of what could easily be 20 different episodes about the French Revolution, right? You go into a lot of detail here. But essentially... The French Revolution starts good, they kill the king, they begin to create a new government where everyone's going to be treated equally, then things go bad with the reign of terror and that guy Robespierre, which we're looking at in class, where he says he's protecting the revolution. Because of him, Napoleon takes over, becomes an absolute emperor, and eventually, because of the things that happened between Napoleon and the rest of the world, he's kicked out of power and the king, at least the king's nephew, is put back in charge. French Revolution is a wild event, and it starts to show us, which a question we're going to get to, are revolutions always successful? Are revolutions always good? So that's the quick, very fast overview of the French Revolution. When we come back from the break, I'm also going to talk about the event we're going to get into next week um, the Sepoy Rebellion, 50 years later, kind of a big jump in time, and there are other revolutions that happen in the meantime, but I kind of want to show you the final gasps of this time period, of this enlightenment, and and show you revolutions that necessarily don't work so well. Um, so stay tuned after the break, and uh, we'll talk about that event as well. Okay, Welcome back to the second half of the podcast, where we're going to spend some time getting into the topic for the following week, or the second week in this unit, Um, and we're going to fast forward about 50 years here, from the American and the French Revolution, which were bang-bang very fast, one after the other, to about the mid-1800s. Um, and an event called the Sepoy Rebellion that I wanted to talk about because it shows kind of the end of the Enlightenment. This is on the very latter side of the Enlightenment as industrialization is starting and as, you know, the cogs to World War I are starting to ramp up. There is a almost revolution that happens in India, but it doesn't go very far. And I think this was an interesting one to look at because we've talked about the American Revolution. America rises up, kicks England out, makes a new country. We talked about the French Revolution, first half of this podcast, um, where France wants to do the same thing, wants to kick the king out, um, make a country by the people for the people. Things fall apart. Napoleon comes along um, and they go right back to it, right? So they have a failed revolution. But this is interesting because this is specifically. Not really a revolution. It's called a rebellion. And I think it's interesting to look at the difference before we jump in here, right? A revolution is like an overthrow of the system. A rebellion is a fight against the system that is in charge, but it doesn't go very far. It doesn't go all the way towards getting rid of the leadership. And um, it's an interesting idea. When does something become a a revolution? Versus when does something stay a rebellion? And so what I want to do on the backside here is just give you guys some historical understanding about this topic that we're going to be getting into. So we can kind of put the pieces of the puzzle in place a little bit easier. Um, So first things first, what we're going to be talking about when it comes to this, this topic and the question we're going to be trying to answer is what caused this rebellion in the first place? Called the Sepoy Rebellion. What caused this thing to happen? And going back to the beginning, I want to give you guys a little bit of background here. So, during the first half of the 1800s, Britain ruled most of India. Britain, just like they did in America, controlled India, but they did it specifically through its company called the East India Trading Company, which was almost a country unto itself. It was such a big company. Um, But what it was, it was a huge private trading company with government powers. It had the power to tax. It had the power to raise armies. It had the power to make deals with other countries. um, And it had the power to take over some regions, right? Um, And so India at this time, the country of India, uh, was, for lack of a better term, colonized, controlled, not by the British, but by a country of the or a company of the British, right? And their job, the East India Trading Company, was essentially to take spices and teas from India and sell them all over the world. Um, and the Indians, very similar to what would happen in in Africa, very similar to what would happen in Asia and other places, were being um used by the British. Now. Some more background about India itself. India at this time was a huge, India still is absolutely massive, rural society with millions of peasants, right? Um, when we say rural, that means that there weren't that many cities. Um, most people in India at this time are still farming, still living and, and working by, by, by farming on the land. And <clears throat> a large minority of them, not the majority, but a large minority of these people who lived in India were Muslim, right? In India, you had two real religious groups. You had uh, the most powerful religious group, the, the the majority religious group was Hindu, still is. And then uh, a minority of them were also Muslim. And there's been some things that have changed since then. Most Muslims now live in Pakistan, Uh, Right next to India, there's some history there, but still kind of the two groups in India, Hindus and Muslims. In India, the Muslim Mughal emperors once ruled much of India, but they lost a lot of their power by the early 1800s. Um, Most Indians, like I said, were already Hindu. And they had divided their society, and it still very much is that way, into different groups. We call them castes. And these are different social classes based upon the beliefs Uh, that each person has some pollution in them and they're born into a certain specific area, right? So India is a very complex society. India had a a, a stratification of society. Most Indians are Hindu, but there's also a good portion of them that make up, um, um, practice Islam. And that's kind of the, the background for India. By the time that the British start coming in, by the time that the British start setting up their their company that's gonna be controlling this this nation. Uh, However, by the point that this event happens, the Sepoy Rebellion, which we're gonna get into here, the number of British officials in India was actually very small. However, during the first half of the 1800s, Britain extended their control of the country. In many regions, this, this company, the East India Trading Company, relied on princes and other rulers. In some regions, the company took direct control to tax the land. Um, and taxing, it's the same reason America had their revolution. It angered a lot of the poor as well as uh, the wealthy, right? But the East India Trading Company, they didn't have a lot of soldiers, a lot of people on the ground. There weren't that many British people actually in India, but they used their 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 power with making deals with other rulers to be in control of this area. Now, getting into the word sepoy. What is a sepoy? It's spelled S-E-P-O-Y. Um, a sepoy was an Indian soldier. The sepoy was an Indian soldier who served in the British... East India Trading Company's armies. Um, Again, there weren't that many English people there, so they had to draw a lot of their troops, a lot of their soldiers, from the actual people that lived in India. And so by the 1850s, there was almost 300,000 sepoys serving in the company's army. A large portion of the group that was helping to control India for the British was made up of these sepoys, these Indian soldiers that work for the British, basically. However, this is where the event takes off. In 1857, um, there were rumors spreading around the army and around the military that made up this this Indian group, these sepoys, that the new rifle cartridges, these new rifle cartridges that they were going to be bringing in and having these sepoys fight with, in order to help them um, work better, they were going to be greased with cow and pig fat, right? Um, the fat that you, you take the meat off of the animal and you have the fat left over, and they would boil that down and they would grease these cartridges with it to make it easier to carry and, and to, to help their guns fire, right? This is the 1800s. The guns are still probably single shot guns. However, here's where the, the, the interesting part steps in and here's where the rebellion really starts uh in both the muslim and the hindu faith you are not allowed you're not supposed to eat cow or pig right uh, specifically cow goes to the hindu faith it's a it's a holy animal you don't mess with the cow in hindu in hinduism right they they're venerated and in islam you're not supposed to eat pig you're not supposed to eat pork so both sides of the sepoy army the muslim side as well as the hindu side in using these cartridges, they would be violating their faith, right? And on May 10th, 1857, some sepoys start to rebel, and they rebel violently, right? They begin killing English residents, specifically in northern India in a place called Meerut. Then, after they killed a lot of the English people there, they marched to Delhi, capital of India today, to appeal to the last Mughal emperor to lead them. So they go to their, their the last Mughal emperor and say, hey, we're going to start a revolution just like the Americans and just like the French did. We're going to have our own here, and we're going to be kicking the British out. And they ask this Mughal, this Mughal emperor to help them. And the rebellion spreads. It spreads to many separate areas, specifically in northern India. The sepoys and the British both committed terrible atrocities, Uh, There were incidents in which British women and children were slaughtered. Uh, They made the English mad in England. Uh, British soldiers also fought with a lot of fury and a lot of violence. Um, In addition to soldiers, many of the rebellion included some Indian nobility, some rural landowners, and uh, peasants. Yet many Indians sided with the British, and not all regions of India took part in the uprising. But... It was still a revolution, and it, it's going to go on for about a year or so. Um, and there's going to be atrocities passed back and forth. It's going to be very similar to a war, right? It's going to look like what the American Revo- Revolution is going to look like. The only difference was this. Um, uprising was suppressed. By the middle of 1858, they had, the British had stopped these sepoys from rebelling, had pushed them out. Had destroyed the rebellion, and as such, the revolution was never successful. These people rose up, they fought back, they wanted to make a change, and it didn't work. And as a result, Britain takes over the East India's trading companies colonies, and officially now, not only are they colonizing India in an in, in idea with the company, now the actual country of Britain is setting up control of this town as well. In fact, it put more active um, control on India than they had beforehand. Um, For a long time, the only information we've had from the Sepoy Rebellion and what happened came from what the British told us. Um, And historians have a lot of times offered differing interpretations of the uprising, focusing on different causes and perspectives. And what we're gonna get into in our class We're gonna be looking at both British and Indian views of the uprising and trying to figure out um, what are the different interpretations that go into it. And again, our question's gonna be, what really caused this Sepoy Rebellion in the first place? I gave you one reason that a lot of people lean towards, but there's also others there as well. But it's an interesting dichotomy, I think, to start out with the American and French Revolutions, these ones that are considered massive revolutions, the American especially, the French Revolution, maybe less so, depending on the way you look at things. And then one that's not even technically considered a revolution, but still had a lot of impact, it's considered a rebellion because it didn't really go as far as the American and the French because it was repressed, but the Sepoy Rebellion. And that's some background. We'll see more of this in class as we get into the Sepoy Rebellion in more detail. But that kind of finishes us up, honestly, with this unit as well, because there's a ton more revolutions that happen But we've kind of picked on a couple of the big ones tell the story of how it starts kind of a middle part with the french as well as how these things start to end and where this takes us looking ahead as we come back for second semester is um, getting us ready the ramp up to world war one because as of about the 1850s about 50 years after the French Revolution, about 60 years after the American, about the same time as the Sepoy Rebellion, you're going to start getting factories pop up, and you're going to start getting people making machines for the first time, and that's going to light the fire and kind of get the train rolling when it comes to World War I. So thank you for listening. I'll see you guys in class, and we'll get into more detail on this then.